Hello, and welcome to Inventors Helping Inventors. I'm your host, Alan Beckley, inventor of the Wonder Wallet. Every week, I interview successful inventors, asking them the questions you want to know. Tune in to learn from the experts so you can get your invention out of the tank and into the bank. Uh, and what you'll typically see if the product is good, you'll see them say to you this one beautiful question. How much is it and can I buy one now? I really appreciate your taking time from your busy schedule to listen to the IHI podcast. It means a lot to me. Today, I'd like to ask you for a small favor. If you could send me a short email, just send it to alan-beckley at msn.com. And in the subject line, put something like listening from wherever you live. And then answer three simple questions for me. Question one, how did you hear about the IHI podcast? Question two, how often do you listen? And question three, what would you like to hear more of or less of or any other suggestions you have? This information is extremely valuable to me. It will help me to continue to shape a program that you're going to enjoy and listen to for a long time. Lastly, if you know of a successful inventor who should be on the show, give me their name. I'd love to follow up with them and see if I can get them on the show as a guest. So, thank you. Let's work together to get your invention out of the tank and into the bank. Welcome to episode number 50. Wow, when I started this podcast in mid-January, I was hoping I could find 20 or 30 successful inventors. I didn't know whether I'd even find that many, and now we've had 50 episodes and we will have many more. So I'm very excited to be bringing you episode number 50. This episode is part two of our interview with Perry the Inventor K. If you haven't heard the first episode, please go back to episode number 49 to hear episode number one with Perry K. Lots of great tidbits in that episode I think you'll enjoy. Speaking of which, there's some great tidbits you're going to be hearing in just a few minutes in episode number 50. As Perry the K inventor tells you about why every inventor should have a Frankenstein prototype. What is that? Well, tune in and you will find out. Also, how Perry builds a market for his products yielding higher royalties. And two CAD programs every inventor should have. So sit back and listen. I think you're going to have a lot of great information to hear in episode number two with Perry the Inventor. So let's get right to our part two now. Well, Perry, you and I both know that being an inventor is not always rainbows and unicorns, so to speak. There are challenges for, right? There are challenges for every inventor. So I'd like to kind of go to sort of the dark side there and ask you, can you share with us a big mistake you made, particularly in the early days? What led you to making the mistake, but also what did you learn from it? And what specifically did you do to recover from it? Can you think of a time that happened to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, in, in the early days when I started out, um, 
inventing, I uh, went and purchased every invention book I could find on uh, how to be a successful inventor. And I read, you know, every one of them cover to cover multiple times. And they all pretty much said the same exact thing. So I thought, you know, they were all, they were all good. And uh, my big mistake was that I believed them. Basically, the concept was that you come up with an idea, you contact companies and tell them you got this new idea, it's going to revolutionize their industry, they're going to make so much money on it, uh, you know, and then uh, they set up a meeting, you go into the meeting, you show them the idea, they instantly see how brilliant it is, sign a fat license agreement, give you a huge advance, and you, um, you know, end up picking out your yacht and your, you know, Ferrari or Lamborghini, you know, you get to pick either one or, or both, you know. Um, so I, I kind of believe that vision, and very quickly you find out that it's just a bunch of baloney. There's, you know, there's a, there's a lot more to the process than simply the steps that the books lay out for you. You know, most companies aren't interested in um, having inventors show new ideas because it exposes them to liability. Um, you start to learn that the books aren't really accurate because... The first thing that happens when you contact most companies is they send you to the legal department. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen lawyers involved in marketing products. Uh, they're always behind the marketers telling them what they can't do, what you can't say, you know, and they're, they're, they kind of put the stops on everything. So if your gateway into the company is the legal department, you have a problem immediately. Companies typically don't want to sign your non-disclosure agreement. And there's all these different issues that, that pop up when you follow what the books say. So I had to throw out all the books and then rethink the process. And what I came up with was this concept of owning the market, owning the customers. If I'm able to go ahead and make a product that customers want to um, you know, purchase, acquire, use, that's what's valuable. Companies don't typically find an invention valuable. What they find is its ability to create an impact. And uh, that typically comes with how many consumers uh, have interest in the product, not consumers that might be interested in the product, consumers that have actual interest in the product. So uh, what I did at that point was instead of me begging companies to look at my properties, and instead of you know, me begging companies to sign an NDA, I went ahead and just completely changed my whole uh, you know, way of doing business. And um, it's worked out a lot better. Uh, typically what I'll do is in many cases, I'll, I'll uh, you know, put all of the intellectual property in order first, and at that point, I can do a public disclosure, so I don't really need to ask them to sign an NDA. Uh, in fact, most companies ask me if I would sign a mutual NDA. So I eliminated that problem. Uh, the next thing I did was I set up the, the products so that they're in the situation where they can be sold. You know, customers, when a customer gives you a credit card number, they're proving that there's interest in the product. If a customer tells you there's interest in the product, that's kind of worthless. But if you have orders, that's proof that there's interest in the product. So by me switching from depending on a licensee 
to go ahead and move a product ahead by me moving the product ahead first, it removes some of the liability. It changes the, you know, initial dealings with the company from being with the legal department to being with the marketing department, you know, department at the company. Uh, and the negotiations take a much different tone. Uh, and typically my royalty rates are way higher um, than a lot of other inventors. And my advances are usually hugely higher than what, what most inventors get. But it has to do with changing the, the way I interact with companies. So that was my biggest mistake was believing all the malarkey uh, that's associated with uh, inventing. That's fantastic. I'd like to just touch on about two or three of the key points you made there. You made so many points that are really valuable for inventors to get. So I'd like to just kind of hit on a few of the points that you you, you laid out there so well. And first and foremost, you know, it's my belief, unfortunately, the media in particular loves to portray the overnight success, which, which has always been a myth. And they do that by showing just the high points. Oh, this person did this. The next thing that happened, they had a big contract for their business, for example, with that. And that led to three more big contracts. And then they're off to the races. And they never talked mm -hmm. about how they were borrowing money from friends and family, almost went bankrupt, and they were struggling to see if they could do that. They had to go back and get a job. Those things just don't get mentioned. So it creates this perception that it's just from A to B to C. And sadly, your discussion here shows you that so many people who've written books on invention, perhaps their editors have suggested it to them or not, that they have laid it out with a really happy picture that, yeah, you've got this great idea. You just simply reach out to companies with it. Oh, they say, great. Um, let me look at my calendar. Yeah, let's get together next week. Uh, we'll have all of our key people there, aha, uh -huh. and then go and pitch this idea to them. And they're so excited, like we need a new product so bad. And you and I know, and everybody else who's been successful know, that's not exactly the way it works. And yep. to your point, they aren't looking for new products. They're developing their own anyways. They are looking for something that's going to impact their customers, grow their business. And to the extent that your product can be shown to do that, in my opinion, now you have an interested audience. And then your remark about the legal department, for sure, I even tell inventors that uh, your attorney should never negotiate your license deal or there'd never be a deal. And that's because attorneys are designed to be cautious and careful. And uh, for that reason, you know, nothing would tend to happen. So your concept yep. of getting your IP in order actually building a market on your own. So you already have some control there and you have some, like I say, interest doesn't mean much, but somebody giving you the credit card does. That approach puts you in the catbird seat in that sense. Then when you come to a company, you're going to have a much more interested audience because you're talking about your customers and the impact this product already has. Would you say that's a mm -hmm. fair recap of what you were just saying? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, and, and it doesn't mean that you're in actual full production. Like, um, I, I've had some interesting products where um, I, I have this method that I teach it to people uh, who are interested. So the, the way it works is I make one prototype to see if I like it. This is usually what I call uh, a Frankenstein prototype uh, or, a, or a plus one prototype. So the Frankenstein prototype is exactly what it sounds. You see the warts and the scars and the, you know, the screws sticking off of it and all the things, you know, look just completely horrible. 
but if it works, it proves the point. And then at that, you know, at that time, I can determine whether or not this property needs to get more time and more money into it because it's cool. Once that happens, I'll build 10 prototypes. So I now know that my idea works. Now I need more prototypes to determine, uh, and I know if I like it. So the, the next phase, the 10, tells me if other people like it. I can you know, let people try it. I can watch them uh, when they're playing with it. And at this stage, I know whether or not the product has a chance of success. Uh, I'm not having my mom try it because she, of course, loves everything I do, right? And uh, I'm not having um, people who care about me and would be concerned about hurting my feelings try it. I'm having actual people who are in there, the target demographic, uh, try it. Uh, and what you'll typically see if the product is good, you'll see them say to you this one beautiful question. How much is it? And can I buy one now? And if you have them say that, enough people say that, then you're, you're onto something. Um, so you, you can do that from the prototype. I had one property, uh, actually the, the color cutter, that we made a prototype uh, of it. Uh, well, we had, you know, 10 prototypes of them. I had two in my pocket and I would demo them for people. And I made this particularly interesting one that was really exotic and expensive to make. And it took me about four hours to make each one. And I would go ahead and demo it. And each time I would demo it, the people would say, can I try it? And I would let them try it. And then they would say, I want to buy this one right now. And I couldn't get it back from them. And, you know, like I said, it took four hours to make each one of these. And I didn't want to part with it because what are they going to give me for it? Ten or twenty dollars, you know, so I'm working for, you know, two dollars an hour, not including parts. They cost about thirty, forty dollars a piece to make, you know. So um, they would say, can I can I buy this one from you? And I would say, no, it's a prototype. I can't, you know, but it got increasingly harder to get them back from people. So being smart, I said, all right, I'll just increase the price to be crazy high. And then nobody will want to buy it and they'll just give it back to me, you know. So I try this out. I have it in my pocket. Somebody, I demo it. They say, can I try it? They try it. They say, how much is it? I say 50 bucks. And person looks me straight in the eye and goes, that's a lot of money. But I kind of think this is worth it. And he goes to take his wallet out and give me $50. And I'm like, no, 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 I was just kidding. I can't sell it. I can't sell it. So that version of the product we stopped showing because everyone loved it so much. Then we came out with a mass unit that we were able to sell for a reasonable price of five bucks. You know, the whole concept is it doesn't matter if you're in love with the product, if nobody else is, that's called a hobby, right? You love the product. You're, is the, you're most excited about it. You love it. You have pride. You smile when you pull it out of the closet and, brush the dust off it and show everyone that's that's a hobby if everyone else likes the product and you can make it to a reasonable quality and sell it for a reasonable price then you have a business and that's the difference that in the difference between an amateur and a professional inventor make sense it makes a lot of sense in fact you know as you're telling your story I realized I followed the same process to a large degree with my first product. 
without really realizing it. I guess I didn't have a name or thought process behind it because I was just doing whatever I could do. So like with my thin wallet, the very first prototype I made was definitely a Frankenstein prototype. I thought a proof of concept. I just need to see if it will even work, if it will even fit in a back pocket. Doesn't have to be made out of leather. So I got me a strip of cardboard, cut it out with a pair of scissors. Mm -hmm. And then I thought I need some plastic inserts to hold the card. So I just went to a store and bought some and they didn't work quite right. So I cut them up and literally taped them together into the form that I needed them to fit on this strip of cardboard that was representing the leather, right? So obviously there's no place to even put your money in this thing. But I wanted to test out the size, you know, of it and see if it would work and see if it would fit in a back pocket. So I did the dimensions of what they should be, but it was just a strip of cardboard with like eight plastic card holding pages taped to it with scotch tape. So I got that. Beautiful. Isn't it? I threw it in my back pocket. And for two or three days while I'm at work and everything else, I've just got this thing in my back pocket and thinking, well, gee, it looks like the dimensions work. It does fit in a pocket. It seems like it would flex. And then from there, when you use the, the 10 prototypes, I literally came out pretty close to 10 prototypes in all. I then went to a leather one, right, which wasn't quite such a mm -hmm. Frankenstein, but it was still ugly and stitched together just with, you know, upholstery needles that I did myself and some swatches from a leather store. But that second prototype was dramatically better. At least it looks like a wallet and you could put money in it. And that was a further test. But anyways, I, I followed that process going forward. And then, you know, again, the other point I'd like to just transition that you made extremely well, and that is it's one thing to love your own product, which you all do. It's another thing to show it to all your friends and family and they love you. So they're going to tell you the product is great. Another to create some prototypes, go out there and show them to people and look for those two key points you make. They ask you, how much is it? And can I buy it now? So often you show it to somebody and they say, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yep. A buyer. <laughs> There's not a buyer. It's not a buyer. It's not a buyer. Yeah, exactly. And the, the funny thing is when, uh, when you have something that really engages people they, and they want to acquire it, they understand there's a fee for it. And I learned that the fee that they're willing to pay has zero correlation to the cost to make the product. So you often hear that products should sell for five times manufacturing cost, you know, and that, that is true, but that's a minimum. If you have a product that's really super awesome, they may pay 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 times manufacturing cost. It doesn't matter what your cost is as long as your minimum price is five times what it costs you to make. Uh, what we did with our unit was we figured out what the, what the most you know, money we could charge for this particular item was based on what people were paying for other items in a similar category. And we set the highest possible price we could set. And as we went from producing you know, hundreds of them to producing thousands to producing hundred thousands of units, our price point dropped substantially but we never had to drop the price. So you can really gauge how well your, your product affects somebody by the challenges it solves and the amount of money they're willing to pay for it, more so than um, 
you know, the arbitrary five times cost. The, the five times cost is designed to make it so that you can cover your expenses and eke out a profit. But that, like I said, has no correlation to what the actual value to a consumer of the property is. Um, so it's, it's really important to do like, you know, we both did. We make one to see if we like it. Then we make the next step of 10 to see if everyone else likes it. Uh, and it's important for an inventor to take all criticism and listen to it because I have inventors argue with me all the time about why some substantial problem with their product is a benefit. And I, you know, I would love to be able to enlighten them in some way, but some people just, you know, have to learn through experience. And so oftentimes I say to people, would you like kudos for what you've done so far? Or would you like my honest opinion, you know, about your product? I'll do either. And um, surprisingly, a lot of people say, I just want the kudos. And I just give them the kudos. And then the serious people say, yeah, you know, give me some honest feedback. Let, let me see how I could, you know, move this product ahead. It's, a, it's an interesting um, you know, task to go from an idea into the, you know, prototypes into, into market. Um, and we all have to have thick skin. I'm sure not everyone loves your product, just like not everyone loves my products. Um, sometimes it's just preference. You know, some people don't like broccoli. Um, nothing wrong with broccoli, just some people don't like it. But sometimes there's some issue that needs to be overcome. And by overcoming those issues, you know, that's where we can make products that just sell in mass retail like crazy. Well, you make, once again, several phenomenal points there. Um, certainly match against my experience as well. But the key point that I'd really like to bring out for our listeners is that you highlight that the 5X markup, which is an absolute, you need, you must have a 5X markup from your cost to manufacture to your re suggested retail price is really just a starting point. And it's not the indication of what the price could actually be. The price could be considerably higher, but it cannot be lower than that, at least if you yep. want to have a business enterprise. And mm -hmm. also, you know, I like to say that, you know, our, our products are like our children. We love them even if no one else does. And the challenge with that is when we hear criticism, just like somebody criticizing our child, like, hey, he's not that great in baseball, is he? We're like, well, but, 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 but we start jumping in there. And so, you know, there are sometimes where the product is what I call a fatal flaw. And that is if people keep bringing up something and saying, well, I like it, but, and they keep saying the same thing, this could be a fatal flaw. This could mean that this yeah. product is not going to sell in the marketplace or it could be a clue for you that maybe you need to take a different direction. Yeah, hundred percent. It does make sense. Um, I have a, I do a little pushback on the, my inventions are my kids. And um, I'll tell you why I found that companies, especially lawyers in the meetings will use that to kind of push me down, uh, you know, beneath them. It's, it's very interesting. I started to see this, uh, we were negotiating a suite of patents that I had created that were a blocking patent and nobody in the industry could use this technology without, you know, coming to see me. And um, a huge company that was unnamed, you know, at the time sent a team of attorneys to talk to me and the lead attorney opened the conversation up with, I know that, you know, inventors think their products are babies, 
And so we'll be gentle with you. And that was a bona fide lie because he's an attorney. He's not supposed to be gentle with me. Um, and so I, I just looked at him and said, listen, my babies are at home with their mom and they're not for sale. I'm a businessman. This invention is for sale. So if you think we're talking about babies, I'm going to leave. But if you're here to discuss business, then the two of, you know, then the two of us, you know, me and your company can sit down and figure out a value that makes sense. And he apologized, said that he was there for business. And after that, we had much equal footing when we were discussing the property. Um, I think that inventors would like to have the fairy tale of inventing be reality, but we're business people and our business is just based on innovation. And since it's not very easy to, to touch innovation often, we tend to you know, think we're selling unicorns. We're not. We're selling you know, intellectual property that controls a particular heart asset that works on planet Earth. And for that, we want usually royalties and an advance. It just needs to be boiled down as simply as that. And by doing that, you get respect from the attorneys. You can give them pushback without them yelling. That's another technique. Sometimes the attorneys will yell at you uh, when they're doing the negotiation and uh, to try and get you to take something silly. And I just laugh. Um, the deal needs to be done in a business appropriate manner, which means that as inventors, we also need to act in a business appropriate manner. So uh, like I said, I, I do push back on the inventions are my babies uh, type stuff. I, I think that we should push away from that. The inventions are our business. We sell our business stuff. We don't sell our babies. Make sense? That actually makes perfect sense. And I fully agree with it. It's, it's the mindset that every inventor needs to have. This is a business, not a hobby. And critiques are helpful in most cases. You don't have to agree with every critique. You just consider it and give it some thought weigh it against what you know and what you've experienced, but do all of these things, not emotionally, do them thoughtfully and objectively. Just like I described my example of the large wallet, you know, objectively, that was a true statement. And, you know, when you look at it that way and not emotionally, then that takes you down a different path. So no, I agree 100%. So I'd like to sort of transition as we kind of move towards a close and saying that you've been helping inventors for quite a while now. What is the biggest mistake you see new inventors making and how do you help them to avoid this and choose a better path? So the, the biggest mistake that I see new inventors make, um, one of them, is that they don't understand that people are allowed to not love your property. Um, if you make you know, the greatest thing in the world, there'll still be somebody who doesn't like it and that's okay. What you want to do is find the group of people that do like it. You know, not everyone likes to paint. Not everyone likes to um, ride bicycles. Not everyone likes to fly in airplanes. So as an inventor, we need to stop, you know, telling everyone that this invention will get 2% of the global market. And if we get that, you know, we're going to be making more money than uh, Apple um, because it's not a reality. The idea is that you need to make something that, speaks to a particular market, can be manufactured at an appropriate price to an acceptable quality, uh, and it has some power and punch to it. 
um, you know, when you're able to show all of the different things that can be assembled into your wallet, it's impressive. You know, when I take a magic marker and I draw a shape on a piece of paper and I pull the shape out of the paper, it's impressive. A lot of times invent inventors make things that are just unimpressive. The benefit they have doesn't outweigh the cost of the item. And so there's this lack of re reality. Um, and what we try and do when we're working with inventors is we try and help them put that magic into the invention. I'm actually going to be doing a presentation on selling uh, your ideas using prototypes at Autodesk University uh, in November. And it should be very interesting because this is the exact topic we're going to go over, you know, shifting people who are engineering oriented into the marketing mindset so that we too get treated like the marketers instead of being treated like the, you know, inventors or the engineers. Uh, there's a difference and we want to transition into that rock star status. Uh, everyone knows what Steve Jobs did and much, much less people know what Steve Wozniak did. But we all know there would be no Steve Jobs without Steve Wozniak. So that's, that's just the shift in mindset that I'm working to help inventors get. So that certainly makes perfect sense. And I'd like to just sort of highlight one thing in particular, at least a label I put on it is, it's great to have some kind of a wow factor for your product. Because when they see that, they say, wow, something unexpected that grabs their attention and it needs to be a wow that is something they would like to have. It doesn't absolutely have to be there, but it certainly makes it so much easier to both get the attention of the person and really to and find them to want to buy it. Like, wow, I've got to have that. That's what, you know, that's what I want. You know, to speak of Steve Jobs when he was doing the, um, the early on, um, well, they weren't even iPhones. I mean, the, the music, you know, the music player, what was it called? Uh, iPod. iPod. You know, he came up with a thousand tunes in your pocket. I mean, what a great hook line, right? <laughs> to just basically mm -hmm. explain what the end result was. I'd like to just go and kind of as we roll to the close here and ask, you know, what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you and learn more about what you do? And then how can they reach you if they have further questions? And also you just mentioned Autodesk University in November. Is that something that our listeners might be able to tap into in some way? And if so, could you chat a little bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Autodesk uh, University is run by obviously Autodesk and uh, it's a very big conference, international conference. I think about 12,000 people show up to it and it's all the latest in uh, 3D CAD uh, and everything related to it. Uh, so it's a pretty cool event. It's run in Vegas um, and this year I was invited to speak there. So uh, if you're going to be you know, in the Vegas area, look at getting a ticket uh, for the for the event because I think it's going to be really cool. Uh, there are two programs that every inventor should work with. Uh, one of them is Fusion 360. It's an awesome 3D CAD program. You can download a, a full working copy of it for free. And the next uh, property is a program called Eagle CAD, which is also owned by Autodesk. And that's how you can make circuit boards. And if you're the type of person that rolls your sleeves up and makes the actual parts, then those two programs work beautifully together. Um, 
And if you can't do it, you may want to find somebody who can work with those two programs uh, because that's how you go from having your idea into having the prototype in just a couple of days. Um, so those, those two programs are what you should get. And we're going to be discussing and showing how they work um, along with a whole bunch of other people at Autodesk University. Um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit. So if people want to get in touch with me, that's how I think we got together. Uh, people should, can look me up there and um, connect to me. I'll be posting articles and other things there. Um, my, uh, the way to contact me is um, at Perry the Inventor on LinkedIn. And we're going to be putting a website uh, together because I think in order to solve global problems, we need to have an army of innovators. You can have an, an army of people that do the same thing over and over again, and nothing changes. But if we have an army of innovators looking to solve the biggest problems, things change, things happen, things get moved ahead. Um, so keep an eye out for that. We're gonna, we'll be announcing that on LinkedIn, um, and we're setting up the website and everything for that now. And we have in the works a book that we're also publishing to show the real way to get your inventions out. There are things that we've actually done that work well for us that we use all the time that let us license products at higher royalty rates than most other people usually get, and that let us move rough ideas into royalty streams. Um, so that's about it. So the way you get in touch with me right now would be LinkedIn, and uh, check out Autodesk University, uh, which is in November. Well, that's, that's phenomenal. There's so much good info there. And I presume they could obviously just do a Google search on Autodesk University and find out about the event and et cetera coming up in November in Las Vegas. And yes. I, I really appreciate you gave two real clear tools for anybody who wants to be more do-it-yourself and hands-on. And that's specifically Fusion 360, which I think you said is an, is an Autodesk product. It's a 3D CAD product and it's uh, available for free as a download, right? Yeah, they have paid versions, but for hobbyists and small businesses, you can get a you know version for for free for a year. Um, and I think if you make less than a hundred grand with it, they let you get another year uh, using it. But we don't want to be in that scenario. I I gladly pay my fee uh, for the most advanced uh, version of uh, Fusion. Uh, it lets me go from the idea into the model, into my 3D printer. And since they acquired EagleCAD, we actually make circuit boards now. And we can fit the circuit board into the 3D model on our screen wow. and see how it's going to work before we you know, spend a penny or a minute to actually make the prototype. So it's super impressive uh, what you can do with the software. Well, that's phenomenal. Perry, I just really want to thank you for sharing your ideas and your insights and your experiences and really lots and lots of good, solid information that inventors really need to give some thought to. They're really hard you know, business tips that you need to know and focus on if your goal really and truly is to be successful. So I want to thank you for bringing all that to the table and in this podcast and you know, I'd like to touch bases with you in maybe six months or a year and see what's going on with you then. And um, just want to thank you for being on the podcast. Well, you know, I, I, I want to reciprocate by thanking you for giving a platform for inventors to help inspire other inventors. Um, I think that 
as a group, we're just a bunch of awesome, nice people. And when you get a whole bunch of us in the room, there's usually some sort of uh, shenanigans that get started. That's always, always fun. And there's always great stories that come out of whatever we, we come up with, but it's people like you that shine a spotlight on all of the good things that inventors are doing. Um, that makes the world just such a better place. So thank you so much for everything that you do and, and keep working on making amazing stuff and highlighting the people that do, because we, we need to have these uh, shining moments uh, highlighted more in, in the media and all over the place. So thanks a lot for all the stuff that you do. Well, thank you again for that as well. And I would like to just highlight, I have, I call it my bodacious mission is to help a million inventors to succeed. And my view is, you know, with all these successful inventors, just like you giving their great advice, if there's a million downloads, a million people listening to it, their million inventors are going to be helped to succeed by doing nothing more than listening to the podcast and learning from the inventors on here. And more than just that, taking action based on that and uh, applying it to their own businesses. So that's, that's my bodacious goal. So I appreciate you being a part of that as well. So thank you so much. It's awesome. All right, everyone go out and invent something cool and then share it um, over at Alan's uh, site and uh, reach out to me and let me know what you're working on too. We'll, we'll see if we can make the world just a much better place. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Perry. All right. Talk to you soon. Take it easy. Hey, IHI Nation. I know from personal experience that inventing can be an interesting, challenging, and enjoyable career. It's been an amazing journey. But like most inventors, I struggled for years trying to transform my invention from an expensive hobby that consumed my money into a real business that made money for me. Can you identify? I bet you can. Here's the good news. I finally figured it out, and I want to share it with you. Invention licensing is the secret to getting your invention into thousands of stores so you can actually make money for your family. It worked for me, and it can work for you too. Are you ready to take your invention to the big time? Just sign up to attend my totally free live interactive webinar, How to License Your Invention for Royalties. What will you learn in this free live webinar? In less than one hour, you're going to learn the seven keys to licensing your invention that most inventors don't know. Also, how to license your invention for less than $500. And a simple tactic to increase your earnings by 30%, even with a small royalty percentage. And more. So, how do you sign up? Easy. Just go to alanbeckley.com slash license. That's A-L-A-N-B-E-C-K-L-E-Y dot com slash license. All the details are there. In 30 seconds, you'll be set to go for the next How to License Your Invention for Royalties live webinar. Just go to alanbeckley.com slash license, and I'll see you in the very next free live webinar. Thanks so much for tuning in to Inventors Helping Inventors. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it. Make sure to subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a single episode. Talk to you soon.